Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's budget day here in Ontario. What does the Ontario Chamber of Commerce hope to hear from today's announcement? President and CEO Rocco Rossi joins us to talk about that. Advocates continue to call on Ontario to ease the COVID-19 restrictions on long-term care homes to help with the mental health of the seniors. 96% of the residents are vaccinated, so what's the delay? And new reports show a disturbing surge of anti-Asian hate crimes here in Canada during the pandemic. How can we stop Asian hate? The executive director of the Chinese-Canadian National Council, Justin Kong, joins us to talk about it. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This is Budget Day here in the province of Ontario. This is a very important day because there is so much riding on this. Uh, because of what's happening with the virus and what's happened to the vaccination program and what's happening or not happening, as some people might suggest, with the economic recovery. And uh, although uh, the finance minister, Mr. Bethalpia, is going to make the announcement later on today with, uh, with reading the budget, of course, and we've been getting some hints over the last couple of days. Uh, yesterday, Premier Ford announced some $3.7 billion to help seniors and people with disabilities. In our 2021 budget, we will be providing $3.7 million to help seniors and people with disabilities get their vaccinations. Just like our friends here at the Mass Vaccination Clinic, we will make sure that anyone in Ontario who wants a vaccine gets a vaccine. Well, that's a good first start. Uh, there are some that are suggesting maybe that's not enough. And uh, I tell you, in the last couple of months, there's been no shortage of suggestions about what the government should be doing going forward. And uh, we're all going to be waiting and, and seeing just exactly what's going to be included in this budget. Among those who uh, have been offering suggestions and some advice on this, of course, is the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Rocco Rossi, the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Rocco, good to have you back. Hope you're doing well these days. Always a pleasure uh, to talk to you, Bill. Appreciate that. And feeling a ton better because my parents are uh, both scheduled for uh, for their first vaccine this week, and that will be uh, an enormous uh, load off my mind. Absolutely. And uh, slowly but surely, we're making our way down the list. I, I'm not sure when this is going to happen. We're still looking at June or end of June or something. But the, and, and, and I know that Mr. The, the, the Premier and the Finance Minister both said this yesterday, that the number one job is the, is the vaccination program and getting people healthy again. Uh, but that's going to come at a cost too, isn't it, Rocco? Uh, well, it is, but it actually is the, the lowest cost of everything, right? Because the longer it takes, the more damage is happening to the economy, not to mention lives and health, uh, and the more that there will be need for programs of support. So when you're looking at the biggest bang for the buck, um, accelerating the, the vaccination process, and there, uh, really, the provinces, yes, there's variation across provinces, and, and, um, and we can be upping the game a bit there, but Canada is currently 42nd in the world in terms of shots in arm per capita. And that really comes down to the supply uh, that can be brought into the country that the, that the federal government really has to um, uh, keep the pedal to the metal on. Uh, that will drive it. But there is nothing uh, more important uh, than that in terms of really bringing that light at the end of the tunnel and shortening the tunnel. 
Well, and that's why it was so troubling to hear the news just a couple of minutes ago that the European Union has announced that they're reducing their uh, export of, of the vaccines over the next six weeks. Now, we have assurances, we're told, from the Canadian government that it's not going to impact any of the stuff that we've ordered and delivered. Time will tell, but that's that's not the kind of news we wanted to hear on a day like this. But you said, and you and I had a conversation all about a year ago, last March, when this whole thing started and the first lockdown started, uh, that we're not going to get the economy better until we get people better. And, and uh, the government needs to keep that in mind. I think that's got to be job one for them. Always, 100%. And that's been uh, a clear message that uh, that we've always sent. Uh, the notion that that there should be this debate between health and the economy is, is nonsensical. The two are intimately uh, intertwined, and we can't have one without the other. As we listen to the budget later on today, uh, we're doing this under the, uh, the the shadow of the black cloud, I guess, on the horizon of discussion about a, a third lockdown. And, and I, I don't want to go there. I know nobody does. But, you know, the medical experts are, are leaning towards that, Rocco. And it's, it's a little disconcerting for businesses that are just opening their doors, especially in some of the GTA and Peel regions that have been closed for such a long time. Uh, this on again, off again thing is, is, is just it's it's a killer for small business. 100 percent um look like you we don't want to go there and the faster the vaccination the more you know the more comfort we can uh we can give to everyone particularly with rising levels of variance it's it's why in many respects uh today's budget it's not an exaggeration to to say uh, it may well be the most important provincial budget uh in living memory and so the priorities the focus the messages that it's sending uh are we're we're watching very very closely as is as are uh, all ontarians well the finance minister peter bethan falvey is uh well he was known as a fiscal hawk uh even before he got into government of course with stuff other stuff in his past life uh, when he worked with the credit raging energy dbrs uh, limited uh Actually, he was one of the, the people of the company that actually downgraded Ontario's credit rating back in 2009 after that financial crisis. Uh, and financial hawks are usually looking for a buck here, a buck there that they can save and reduce the bottom line. Th- but that's not the attitude this government's going to have to take, or I guess any government's going to have to take over the next little while, Rocky. This is really about spending at this stage and where that money's going to be spent. Yeah, and there, to be clear, there has been uh, no talk uh, from the minister uh, around austerity. Um, you know, as the old saying goes, when you're falling from the airplane, you, you don't check the cost of the parachute. You just want to save, uh, save the lives. That said, um, you also want to show, because we're a year into this, you know, which things have had the biggest impact, which less so, Let's make sure that we're focusing on things with the highest impact against those with uh, those who have suffered the most, um, uh, so that you're 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 still always looking to get the best uh, the, the best result from uh, from your investment because there is an infinite amount of money at the end of the day. 
No, there isn't. But it, again, the key here is how it's going to be spent and where it's going to be spent. And and we've heard from a lot of your members over the last well twelve months at least now uh, about the, their perspective on what's going on with both federal and provincial assistance programs. And, and the consensus seems to be, especially for small business, that it, well, it's just not enough. And and I know that statistically, Ontario per capita has spent less than most other provinces uh, when it comes to that kind of assistance. So I, I think a lot of your members, and I think a lot of people in this province right now, uh, it, when this budget is going to be produced, Rocco, are looking for the government to step it up. Uh, no question. The you know the priorities that that we've laid out a the acceleration of uh, of the vaccination process, and I was delighted to to hear that that leak of the uh, of the budget, the three point seven million to really help seniors and disabled those who are having difficulty uh, getting. We need to get those people to uh, to their appointments. That's that's a good step. Uh, the crisis is not over, and so supports to affected businesses need to need to continue. And like the uh, small business uh, support grants that uh, that came earlier, they need to be in the form of grants, not more debt. Because after a year of this, the up and downs, and you know the threat of even another lockdown. Um, you, you can't tell people go more into debt. So make sure it's coming in the form of cash. Make sure that um, that the qualifications for that are spread to really uh, capture those who are hurt. Uh, we've also called for, you know, specific help in 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 the areas that have been particularly hard hit. You think about the tourism and hospitality industry that really. Um, took it in the teeth right from the get-go and are still um, still staggering um, because there are other sectors that that have done uh, have done quite well and so uh, make sure that we're we're very targeted in those supports and that they come in the in the form of grants also because sectors will be coming back at different rates the importance of focusing on Skilling and reskilling, so that we make sure that people get what they need to be able to fill the jobs as they're coming out. We'd love to see something in that area as well. We think that would be an important step for the economy. Well, you've done an awful lot of work on this at the Ontario Chamber uh, through the course of this year, and, and the, the report about the C session that you and I talked about some months ago when the Ontario Chamber released those results. Uh, but even pre-budget now, you've been active uh, with uh, the advocacy series, uh, which guess, basically, I guess, is, is you going out there and talking to the people that are making the decisions and the people that are impacted by this and getting some feedback. So, uh, I mean, I'm assuming the government has done their homework on this, but you certainly have too. Uh, and this would serve, I think, as a fact fabulous foundation for them to say, okay, here's where we need to start, because you've already identified most of those sectors that need the help first. 100%. I mean, at the end of the day, I have an amazing team here uh, at the OCC, but what makes us really powerful is the fact that we've got 140 chambers and boards of trade in every corner of this province, including uh, the fantastic team led by uh, Keenan Loomis right there in, in Hamilton. And, and we've been providing that insight, that intel from the ground level, uh, again, from every corner of the province, every sector, uh, every type and size of business. Uh, and that's really what's enabled us to, to, to be a strong voice. And as you point out, our advocacy um, series, we've now brought a 100 of those chambers uh, who've been talking to 
you know, leaders in uh, the government, uh, leaders in the in the opposition party. We had Andrea Horvath and and her caucus with us uh, yesterday. We're meeting with um, uh, the Liberal caucus and also with uh, Green Party leader uh, Mike Mike Schreiner because everybody can contribute. There's no one with the monopoly of truth on this. We are firm believers at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce that that the best policy comes from this creative and constructive uh, discussion, and we will continue to do uh, our part and are, are pleased that all parties um, are, are open to that conversation and are looking for uh, the data that, uh, that we and others can provide. Rocco, some of the stuff that we're hoping to see in the budget and well, some of the stuff the government's actually leaked that is going to be are things that you've discussed already. I think reskilling is, is very important to this. Uh, access to capital for small business, as you say, not, not, not loans. We don't need any more loans. They need grants in situations like this. Uh, but there's two other things I wanted to touch on that uh, they haven't received a whole lot of conversation, but I think they're key to this. Uh, one is broadband uh, and, and improving the, the quality of broadband. The other is interprovincial trade, which hasn't been talked about too much but that's going to be a key element i mean breaking down some of those barriers so we can help each other of course when we, we're starting to climb up with our economy and and provincial economies in other parts of the country well you're reading our playbook uh very closely bill thank you uh absolutely this crisis has shown has exposed the cost of the digital divide in this province um those businesses who've had access to broadband who've been able to pivot more of their business online have done far better than those who don't have that access. And it's not just business, it's education. Learning from home is a whole lot easier if you have access to broadband versus trying to do it with, with, with dial-up. And virtual health care um, also is, uh, is enormously accelerated when you have broadband. So we most definitely have seen some steps not just from the federal government and provincial government, but private sector making investments in this area. Anything that can be done to accelerate that is 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 definitely to the good. That is those are the those are the highways of the 21st century. Those are you know we used to think about infrastructure projects being the physical infrastructure, and that's still important. But that softer infrastructure of of uh, broadband is key, and you're your other point on interprovincial trade is bang on at a time when all governments and all levels of government are going to come out of this with massive debt. Anything we can do to increase productivity that doesn't require another check is actually something that should go pretty high up on the list of things to do. And at the top of that list is reducing barriers between the provinces. It is easier in many respects to trade between Canada and the United States than it is between Ontario and Manitoba in some areas. And that just makes no sense in a increasingly competitive world where people will be, you know, and you pointed out to the Europeans, maybe uh, putting more restrictions on vaccines, where, where you see this kind of protectionism happening, you need to make yourself bigger not smaller by splitting ourselves by by province when it comes to the economy and so everything that can be done on that front absolutely now that's something you can't you can do some things unilaterally so we'd like to see those signals from the provincial government 
But this is also one where we're going to need all of the provinces to be stepping up and saying, hey, we've seen the crisis. We've talked about reducing barriers for decades, but now is absolutely the time to, uh, to act because we don't have a choice anymore. Well, yeah, it's about time we put away some of these silly things that people have been clinging to, uh, like the protectionist attitudes and, and tariffs. I mean, we, we wag our finger at the United States when they impose tariffs. We've been doing it to each other for the last hundred years uh, on this side of the border between provinces, and it's ridiculous, and it's it's something that it needs to be addressed, among many other things. And uh, we'll be watching, as you will, Arco, later on today to see just how the government approaches some of these concerns. Uh, as always, thanks so much for the great work that you and the Ontario Chamber have done prepping everyone for this budget. and. Uh, Let's see what happens today, and I'm sure you and I will talk uh, very shortly in the future about the impact this is going to have. Thanks for this, Rocco. Count on it. Stay positive and test negative, my friend. You betcha. Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Premier made an announcement yesterday about investing $3.7 million to help seniors uh, with disabilities to get to the vaccination sites, and that's a good idea. The devil will be in the details, as always, and I want to talk about that in just a second, but there's another issue that I think uh, we've got to get out here again, because this is something that we're just not getting enough action on from the government. While the province says it's still working on whether to loosen restrictions on long-term care homes, the City of Toronto, for instance, said it's something that uh, they're working on as well, but advocates have been asking for loosened restrictions for a long, long time right now, as 96% of long-term patients are now vaccinated, but they still don't have the access to go even outdoors sometimes because the place in which they live is saying you can't do that. Global's Dave Woodard has some details. Admitting it takes a couple of weeks for vaccines to become effective, Dr. Eileen Davila says they know loosening restrictions will be important for residents' mental health. Social interaction and the ability to to have a little more freedom is an important component of that. But Dr. Davila also pointed to BC where the virus is still surging, even though 80% of long-term care residents have been vaccinated. Some of those homes are suffering outbreaks, so it is a, a very delicate balance. She says loosening restrictions is something that's been raised by her officials to the province, and she hopes something's decided sooner rather than later. Dave Woodard, Global News. Well, uh, sooner would be good, uh, but later is happening more and more often, and that's the frustration I think a lot of people are feeling. To talk about this and, and the other announcement uh, and, the, and what's going on with long-term care and the frail and elderly, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Amit Arya, who is the co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care and, of course, also a palliative care physician. Doctor, great to have you back on the show. I hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, thanks for asking, Bill. It's uh, definitely a troubling time. Great to be, you know, great to be back. Well, I want to talk about these in reverse order. We'll get to the announcement about uh, getting seniors to the vaccination sites in, in a couple of minutes. But this has been something that you would have talked about for months now uh, about the treatment of patients and, and and residents in long-term care facilities. You know, the the government's feeling pretty good about themselves right now about the vaccination program and and how that went. Uh, but we're still hearing stories, and I'm sure you are too, about residents, especially from family members of residents that say, look, we're not even allowed to go outside. Uh, there's a story that I'm sure you've heard. It was at one of the Toronto homes uh, where the staff basically said uh, to the daughter of the of the, the, the lady that was in the form, if you take her out onto the sidewalk, she's going to have to be quarantined for 14 days. I mean, this is this is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I agree with you, Bill. It makes makes just no sense. I mean, we're I mean, we could potentially I mean, many of us are not vaccinated in the general population. Only, I believe, a little over 8% of Ontarians have received one dose of the vaccine at this time. We're still early on in the overall rollout, but nobody tells us that. 
where if we just step outside our house and get some fresh air and enjoy this new spring weather, nobody would tell us, well, we have to be quarantined for 14 days. This just doesn't make any sense. And a reminder to everyone listening, I mean, the median life expectancy of people in these long-term care homes is 18 months. So for many of these people, it could be their last chance to see their loved ones. It could be their last chance to, I don't know, enjoy some cake or ice cream. It could be their last chance to, um, you know, see the spring weather. And it shows us that we cannot just bank everything on infection control. I mean, infection control itself is obviously much less of a risk now with vaccines uh, being delivered to almost all the residents. But we have to balance quality of life. Quality of life is so important. Well, I want to get into that in, in greater detail because I, I, I'm getting the sense that some of these organizers and some of the operators of these facilities just don't seem to get that. And, and you outlined, and some of the other guests that are also members, of course, of, of uh, Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care have talked to us about this as well. Uh, a lot of these residents, Doctor, for all intents and purposes, have been in prison for the last 12 months. And, and I know that may sound draconian, but they're not allowed out of their rooms, or if they are, they can go to the to the dining hall, maybe, uh, or but they can't go outside, they can't do anything i mean and here i i I hear people saying well i'm really getting tired of sitting around the house all day long that's that's nothing compared to what these residents have to put up with yeah i mean absolutely i mean there's well-established medical you know evidence from before the pandemic that social isolation was in itself a killer People who were socially isolated and feeling lonely were uh, had premature deaths. They were more likely to get infections out of all things, and they were more likely to be malnourished, more likely to fall. And we even now have evidence from, you know, the pandemic. I mean, we didn't really need a study on this. We kind of all saw it happening very tragically that, you know, people who were socially isolated, I mean, these long, in these long-term care homes, because the sole focus was only on infection control, they died earlier and they suffered, and that was absolutely inappropriate. But now at this time, what is even worse for those who have survived is that in many long-term care homes, not all, but many long-term care homes, there's still these sort of old rules, which may be applied before vaccinations, but they definitely should not apply now. I mean, we're at a point during the pandemic where we maybe have 10 or so cases um, in long-term care of COVID-19. And, you know, we had thousands before. We had one person dying per hour at the peak of the pandemic. So thankfully that's over. And we pretty much have almost zero deaths from COVID-19 every day. The second wave is over. So there's no reason that we cannot loosen these restrictions with precautions. I mean, we're not asked. I don't think anybody's saying that we're just going to take off our masks and PPE. I've never seen any families asking for that. But hey, if you could get out and get some fresh air and, you know, interact with your grandchildren and you wouldn't have to do that through a window for the first time in a year and it would give you some happiness, why wouldn't we prioritize that? Well, I'm sure many of us who've had loved ones in these facilities know that. I mean, some of them have some some rather interesting amenities, you know, little parquet areas and some benches and things of this nature. Uh, for the first time in seven or eight months, uh, some of these people should be allowed to go and sit with their, their, their sons, their daughters, their, their loved ones on one of these benches and just get some fresh air and talk. And as, as one lady said, you know, she's her, her mother's in a room with, with three other residents. She says, we can't carry on a conversation with, uh, to do with anything. I mean, there's, there's no confidentiality there. Uh, and and it's it's something that's being taken away. And as you had that, mentioned, that just adds to the stress of this whole situation. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, there's scenarios that I'm facing in my practice where I work in long-term care homes and support uh, residents and families where, you know, the, the, the essential caregiver, that is the family member usually, has been vaccinated. You know, of course, the resident has been vaccinated and they both even received two doses. But yet, I mean, other than going in with PPE, they can't meet outside and just sort of enjoy some fresh air together. And that, once again, just makes no sense. 
It seems to me that there's many different layers of what we call bureaucratic inertia, um, where maybe, you know, the home is waiting for public health and public health is waiting for the government to act. And that simply shouldn't be the case at this point in time. And once again, I'll say it again. I mean, these are people who don't have a lot of time and we have to focus on their quality of life. Well, and, and the, the province has to step up here. And I know even the, the medical officer in Toronto is, is a little guarded in her, in her answer to this. And uh, they've got to understand the quality of life issues here and the impact that it's having and the stress that it's having. Uh, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to, to have been basically locked in your room uh, for the last 12 months. And, and we even heard that uh, from some of the inquiries. There have been a couple of different inquiries, as you and I have talked about in the past, Doctor, about some of the concerns about the long-term care facilities. And more than one of those residents that testified said they'd rather die than keep living in the, in the environment in which they're in right now. Uh, I mean, we've got to, we can't just hear those people. We have to listen to them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And there's sort of much bigger systemic issues, as we can all see, that are yet again in play in the long-term care sector. Uh, we have a sector which is fundamentally designed to benefit the operator of the long-term care home in this top-down fashion and really doesn't listen to the voices of the people who need to be running the system. The residents, the frontline health workers, and the families are the people that we should be listening to. And speaking back about this, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Once again, um, I think we're all sort of flabbergasted. When we can go outside for a walk, we may not have had the vaccine. We, now, you know, indoor dining is even starting where we can sit inside with perhaps uh, up to 49 other people. We'd have to remove our masks to actually, um, you know, eat or drink something. And that somehow is allowed. But these poor residents who have already received the vaccine and gone through so much just can't, like, see the sunshine and, you know, get some fresh air. Yeah, you made a very important point. First of all, we know the residents, for the most part, have been vaccinated at this stage, and, and that's great. Uh, but the family members who are caregivers in that situation, uh, they've been vaccinated for the most part, too. Anybody I've talked to that's in that position has said, yeah, I got the vaccine because I'm going to be going back and forth and be on, a, on a consistent basis. So they're protected, and we understand that the, you know, the vaccination doesn't mean you're bulletproof. Uh, but by the same token, I mean, going outside with, with masks on or with PPE of any description uh, and just getting some fresh share and having a discussion uh it would go go a long way towards improving not just the mental but i think the physical health of, of a lot of those residents yeah yeah for sure i mean we, we we like to say mental health is health but for some reason we've completely forgotten about that when it comes to you know our vulnerable seniors and elders in long-term care facilities i mean one thing i wanted to point out bill is that i'm i am hearing and i'm seeing actually with my practice that there are some long-term care homes some which are actually already allowing uh, people out to get some fresh air and are just kind of doing it on their own. And they're resuming some activities. Uh, for example, having people, uh, there's a long-term care home where I was in where there was a group of four people sitting, sitting distance, wearing masks and so on, playing Jeopardy, because that was something they really enjoyed to do together. So the problem is, is as you mentioned, there's no sort of ov oversight and there's no directive or revised directive coming from, you know, the Ontario government that sort of says, well, now we can sort of look at the specific population with precautions. We can start to ease these restrictions. Well, and, and the very definition of family caregivers is that they're the ones who are adding on. I mean, the, there's certainly, as we know, there's not enough staff for everybody to look after every one of these residents or, or to say, you know, a resident in such and such a room uh, wants to go outside for a few minutes. That's fine. But if the family caregiver is there, why not? I mean, that's taking the pressure off the staff anyway. So I think there's there has to be some flexibility there. Uh, I want to ask you about this other section here, too, that the, uh, the Premier talked about yesterday, uh, $3.7 million uh, to help seniors and those 
those with disabilities to get into vaccination sites. Uh, as much as we're, I think, glad that uh, that the residents of long-term care had a huge uptake in, in vaccinations, uh, one of the more troubling statistics that I've seen, uh, Doctor, over the last little while is uh, the 80-plus population, not necessarily residents of these facilities, but it, it could be in other facilities, could be still living at home. Uh, the, the percentage of people getting vaccinated is, uh, I, I think, dramatically low and lower than it should be. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And uh, there's been concerning problems with access to vaccination um, rather than what we would call vaccine hesitancy. So some of those concerns honestly should have been dealt with before the vaccine rollout even started. I mean, we had months to really plan for the situation when we would have had vaccines. So I'm really shocked as to why this didn't happen before. I mean, firstly, when we have these mass vaccination sites, I mean, we are seeing, and I'm sure you're seeing, Bill, I mean, it's being reported in the media that, um, you know, there's many people who are crowded and waiting in a lineup for like two or three hours. And that's absolutely unacceptable. I mean, thankfully, the weather's a little okay these days. But you can imagine if it's raining or if the temperature drops again, this is not really safe for people who are already using walkers and facing mobility issues. I mean, what would have been ideal in this situation is that we had a plan to bring vaccines to people rather than bringing everyone to a mass vaccination site. Perhaps if you're mobile and you can already drive around and you're enjoying your retirement golfing, maybe a mass vaccination site is okay. But many people who are frail and already have other comorbidities are you know, potentially getting left behind. I would say they are getting left behind. And I can tell you in my practice, I serve many people who are housebound and who can't just leave the house at all. I mean, they, they need a lift, for example, just to get from their bed to their wheelchair. So there's no way they can get into a mass vaccination site. And in those circumstances, I do wonder, I mean, why did we not get home care nurses involved? Why did we not get family doctors involved to give them the vaccine and roll this out with what it literally should be at this time. I mean, we're in the third wave with this 24-7 operation. I mean, we need to get the vaccines into the right arms as soon as we can. Well, interesting survey about that, and we're inundated with surveys, but I think this is very germane to the discussion. Uh, as we say, the numbers aren't as high as they should be, and that are actually 75-plus, not just 80-plus uh, demographic. And those that have not received the vaccine yet did say in this survey, doctor, that they would absolutely get the vaccine if it was their family doctor that was giving it to them or, or their, the caring physician in situations like that. Those are the people that we have a relationship in with we trust. And I, th- you know, it, there might be some hesitancy here because, like you say, it may be a little over overwhelming to to go to one of these large clinics but i mean if it's your doctor or the the person who's in your case giving in-home care to situations like that those barriers are broken down and 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 that level of trust is really going to be the foundation for the the people to say yeah please uh, you know i i will do it if i trust you and if you think this is good then we'll do this uh but we i think it's an opportunity to lost here in ontario and then i know they keep saying well yeah well you're going to get there I, i think it should should have been one of the first steps Oh, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right, Bill. I mean, healthcare is built on relationships, is built on trust. We know that when it comes to whether it comes to public health restrictions, whether it comes to the vaccine, there's been a lot of mixed messaging come out, you know, coming out even from the government. And especially when we look at social media channels and so on. I mean, AstraZeneca is one example where it's really been a PR nightmare, to be very honest, yeah, in terms of all the flip-flopping. Um, there's been a lot of different uh, recommendations going back and forth based on the intervals between doses. And that's something to consider. So absolutely, trust is so important in this situation. And um, I know from my family physician colleagues, I mean, we know family 
family medicine is all about knowing families and developing long-term relationships. So with if we had family doctors involved and we had the vaccine in their hands, we could have we could have been in a completely different position at this time. And I would not only just add family doctors, but also in my practice, once again, home care nurses develop very close relationships with uh, people and community health centers as well. I think those are some uh, key things. And one thing to add to this, uh, even if we had people going into family doctors' office offices or pharmacies, it would have been better. I mean, we have pharmacies giving out the vaccine in some areas, probably not the right areas, and I can speak about that if you want. But, you know, your family doctor and pharmacy are also more local. It's easier to get into them, and it's quicker, usually, right? They probably would have made you wait for two or three hours outside in this big lineup where you're crowded and coming into contact with these non-household people. It would have been better. But yet, having this mass vaccination site, obviously, it might be far away and waiting longer. It just doesn't make sense. Why aren't the the vaccines in the pharmacies in, in some of the challenged neighborhoods? Yeah, so that to me is something that uh, is, is really wrong in terms of our vaccine rollout. I mean, it's kind of been done at best on a per capita basis. But I mean, a reminder, I mean, we're actually not going through the same pandemic and I'll explain that. So we know that, of course, age is a significant risk factor for dying from COVID-19, but it's not just age. It's actually the neighborhood in which you live in and neighborhoods where there are more low income essential workers, people who are more likely to be racialized, people are living in crowded housing, more poverty, uh, people living in multi-generational households, you know, often people with parents or grandparents in the same household, for example, are at much higher risk from COVID-19. So, for example, um, if you're an 80-year-old living in the highest risk neighborhood um, of Ontario, the highest risk postal code, your risk of dying from COVID-19 is actually 27 times more compared to if you were an 80-year-old in the lowest risk postal code. So this should not have been per capita. I mean, it's not that we shouldn't give vaccines to everyone, but we should direct the vaccines to where the need is greatest. Once again, Toronto, uh, Northwest Toronto, I would say, and Peel region, Scarborough are the main you know, sort of areas that come to mind. Well, it's it's never too late to do the right thing. And I, I, I wish they would reevaluate some of the stuff they've done here right now, because until we have vaccines for everybody, we're not there yet. Uh, you're absolutely right, doctor. We have to be like, more strategic about where they're actually going to be uh, handed out. Anyway, we'll see what they say later on this afternoon with their budget and certainly follow it up. Uh, always a pleasure uh, sir, to have you on the program. Stay well, doctor. And I know we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Bill. Take care. Dr. Amita Ray, of course, uh, co-founder of Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care and a palliative care physician. And as we've found out over the last number of months that he's been guesting on our program, very passionate about the, the kind of care that our frail and elderly folks need and deserve in long-term care facilities. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hate crimes are on the rise. Uh, especially hate crimes against Asians in this country. This is not something happening out there someplace. It's happening right here in Canada. And a professor at the University of British Columbia says Canadians blame a range of societal problems on Asian Canadians, and it needs to stop. Professor Henry Yu said that Tuesday's attack in Atlanta, which left eight dead, including six Asian women, highlights just how Asians are being targeted. I'm not a sex worker. I'm not female. It doesn't matter. Because even though this guy won't be targeting me, the idea that Asians are blamed and scapegoated for societal problems that generally have nothing to do with us, that is what makes you feel insecure. 
It's a frustrating situation to be sure, a frightening situation, quite frankly, and it's something that we need to talk about. Let's get this out in the open. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Justin Kong. Justin is the Executive Director of the Chinese-Canadian National Council, uh, Toronto Chapter. Justin, thank you so much. I'm glad you could have some time for us today. Hey, thanks for having us over, Bill. Uh, great to talk about this because we've been hearing anecdotally about some of this stuff, and, and I... I personally uh, had to wonder about this. I mean, when a certain ex-president started referring to this as the, the Chinese flu uh, and the Asian flu or whatever phraseology he was using at the time, and, and, and his, his advocates, his acolytes started to grasp onto this, I figured there's going to be a pushback on this. Uh, people are going to gravitate to this. They're going to embrace this. And uh, what was already a troubling situation, uh, that being crimes and, and incidents against Asians, is, is really just gone off the map now, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think that's what we're seeing a lot, right? Kind of like this idea that, you know, for some reason, you know, for somehow, like, Asian or uh, Chinese people are responsible for spreading the COVID-19 virus, right? Um, and so when, when that kind of, kind of like, logic uh, proliferates, uh, it means that people want to take out their anger and their frustration on, on um, Chinese and Asian Canadians, right? Um, and I think that's what we're seeing right now with all these uh, attacks, these racist attacks. Uh, which range from, you know, being yelled at to being spat at to being physically assaulted. Um, yeah, and, and all that happens when, when we kind of say, like, yeah, you know, it's it's the Chinese or Asian Canadians who are, you know, uh, responsible for the virus, right? Uh, as Henry pointed out earlier, there's no there's no reason why we should think that, right? Well, uh, there are two elements, as, as, uh, I guess, it's just about every incidence of hatred uh, like this and, and, and the sorts of crimes that we're seeing. One of them is hatred, and the other, of course, is, is, is misinformation or lies, I guess we could probably mm -hmm. more accurately call it. And, and those two elements seem to be the foundation of a lot of the activity we're seeing here. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, you know, obviously, you know, um, racism is not new in Canada. I mean, we have a, we have a long history of it, unfortunately. Uh, and, but we've also, also certainly made important uh, move, moves to improve it, right? Uh, but certainly, you know, that the racism towards, anti, uh, towards Asian communities continue to exist, right? And we should be working hard to address that, along with other forms of racism, whether it's, you know, anti-black racism and, um, and whatnot, right? And, and to really do that from a perspective of, um, you know, social and economic justice, right? How do we all work together as Canadians to fight for, you know, uh, social and economic justice, right? Is it frustrating? It must be frustrating uh, when when we see incidents like this, uh, and and the authorities are, are reticent to actually label it as what it is. And I'll give you the example of the Atlanta situation, the tragedy in Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, six women were killed. One of the officers involved in the investigation said, "Well, we're having trouble trying to classify this as a hate crime." <laughs> I, I'm that, I was just gobsmacked by that. I mean, come yeah. on, people, with, with with that sort of attitude, with the people that are supposed to be looking after this and and dealing with this. Uh, it's, you wonder, okay, how are we ever going to get resolution to this thing? Yeah, so, you know, I think that's a, that's a good question, and it's actually a big uh, big set of debate, right? Because I think, obviously, that is, that is a hate, like, in so many ways, it is a hate crime, right? Um, at the same time, I think there is <clears throat> there's reluctance from the community, uh, from the communities involved, to, you know, um, see kind of policing as a way to address the issue, right? Um, because in, in many ways, um, Asian and, you know, a lot of uh, racialized communities have... Uh, very, you know, tense relations with the police, right? Uh, whether that's, you know, due to, you know, uh, long histories of racism or, you know, issues around, like, immigration. 
so on and so forth, right? So when we really look at marginalized uh, populations within within uh, racialized and immigrant communities, there there is a lot of reluctance to go to the police and, and to you know uh, talk to the police, right? So really, it's and and again, like you know, you can't put in so, in so many ways, you can't police your way out of racism, right? We mm-hmm. gotta address it as a systemic issue, right? Um, just like we can't police our way out of you know poverty or homelessness, right? We we need to really look at the systemic roots of of these social problems and and address them from from the roots, right? But in a circumstance like this, and I'm looking at the study that was released that that is serving as a catalyst for this discussion uh, done by the Chinese National Council, uh, they talked about uh, verbal insults, physical assaults, of course. 643 complaints were submitted to the council's online platforms about this. That was between March and December. Uh, But to your point, though, uh, Justin, how many are not reported? Because they figure, what's the use? Yeah, I think that's a big part, right? Like, it's only the tip of the iceberg, right? Um, And obviously, you know, um, for people who are, you know, more vulnerable or they may not, you know, have access to the Internet or, you know, maybe they don't speak English, um, even though we do have um, other language accessibility on the website, um, there's a lot of barriers to even reporting uh, the instance, right? Um, And people may have reluctance about reporting for many reasons, right? Um, So we have to recognize that, and that's why we're also pushing for a community-led collection, right? Because we know, like, Reports to the police are, are going to underreport, right? Most people aren't going to go to the police unless if it's super serious. And even then, they may have a lot of reluctance in doing it, right? So we need a community-based platform to collect these experiences and to really um, analyze data going forward, right, to make sure, you know, we're improving and we're addressing the issue as a country, right? I, I agree. You can't police your way out of this. And, and, and you know, the hatred is there, and that seems to be the foundation for what's going on here. But when you see incidents like this, and, and some of these things, well, quite frankly, I mean, intimidation is one thing, but there's physical harm that's coming to an awful lot of the people that are being victimized by this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we talked about the example of the young girl that was spat upon uh, as yeah. she was walking home from work. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, that that's a pot. I know why they're doing it. They're, you know, the, the message they seem to be implying here is that, you know, you brought this on you you yeah. brought COVID here and now we're going to yeah. give it to you uh, yeah. i mean how how ridiculous can it be yeah I, you know i think that's um that's one of the really um disturbing parts about this right you know uh, i'm i'm reminded of a story that you know um that we did earlier this year um a young you know a young chinese um, canadian uh health worker she was working as a nurse right so this was early on in the pandemic, right? When you know, still things still weren't clear. You know, there wasn't enough PPE. Um, everything was kind of like up in the air, right? In you know, March or April, and um, and so you know, she's working at work, and obviously like a long day, whatever, right? And then she she gets off work. It's like okay, finally, right? Um, and then she's on her way home, and then suddenly, you know, someone just spits at her, and she, and they're like, go back to China, right? Um, so really, I think that's really one of the really disturbing things that we're seeing, right? It's like the people who are impacted the most are are people who are on the front lines, right? They're essential workers. They're they're workers who are, you know, taking care of our seniors, right? Who are, you know, providing food for us in grocery stores or restaurants, right? Um, and so really, for the recommendations, that's really one of the things we really want to like hammer into, right? Like fighting anti-Asian racism is also about fighting for for workers and and workers' rights, right? Um, and so we also include in in our demands, you know. Making sure that you know uh, frontline workers have paid sick days, and you know um, that yeah, that the support for migrants and migrants have have right um, have access to immigrant status, right? Um, so all of these things I think are connected to you know anti-Asian racism, right? And how do we fight it comprehensively and holistically? I think is really important, right? Um, certainly, you know, Asian Canadian and Chinese Canadian workers have a long history in Canada. 
Um, and, and often, you know, we, we forget about that history, right? And so, yeah, I think it's really important to really um, center the experiences of, of the workers who are on the front lines and also not only dealing with the, the pandemic, but also dealing with the racism associated with it, right, which is what's really disheartening about uh, all of this. Well, because some of the victims, and I mean, I've talked to some of them anecdotally that have experienced this over the last, not just a year, but number of years, uh, you know, this idea about, hey, we'll go back to China. Well, I was born in Toronto. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's just they're just this latent hatred that they have, and as soon as they see somebody who appears to be of Asian descent, they figure that's the enemy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, so totally like, you know, it's like people who may not even be Chinese or who may not be Asian. And it shouldn't matter, right? It shouldn't matter. Like, no. You know, yeah, so, uh, and, and it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's disturbing, right? Vancouver police have been tracking this, of course, and you've seen these statistics, but Justin, but I just wanted to let our listeners know about this, too. Uh, their stats show that there is a 717% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes in the city within the last 12 months. Uh, and that's, that's Vancouver. Now, I'm not suggesting it's that high in every other city, but uh, I think that's very characteristic of what we see happening right across the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so certainly, you know, what has been shocking as well is in the past two months, uh, we had over 500 uh, instances reported to our website, right? Um, so just January and February of 2021, uh, right? So, so definitely seems to be a spike. I mean, ho- hopefully, you know, it's um, it goes away. And you know, I think you know everyone is, you know, I, I think we recognize. I think everyone recognizes how bad the pandemic has been on on for folks. You know, like you know, we lost our jobs. You know, we're we're losing you know opportunities to be with friends and family. But I think really what I would want to stress is like this is not the fault of you know Chinese or, or Asian Canadians, right? You know this is not. No. Um, yeah, and and it's really important that our political leadership take take that stance and make it clear, right? It's not it's not their fault, right? It's not our fault, right? Um, you know I think we we had to have lessons to learn about how we can improve our our healthcare system, our, our pandemic responses. I, I think there's a lot of questions we need to talk about systematically, right? And when we just you know uh, scapegoat Asians, and you know we're not getting at those questions, right? The, the demographics here are interesting, too. Uh, the percentage, the overwhelming percentage of the attacks to happen to youth under 18, adults over 55, and females, uh, which I th- think probably speaks to the, the, the spineless nature of the perpetrators mm-hmm. that are doing this sort of thing. They're t- picking on those that think they can't actually push back or anything like this, and uh, which is not unusual, I guess, in circumstances like this. But I, I, the question I wanted to ask you, though, as you, as you listen to the folks that have responded to your survey and, and the other ones that are done here, uh, there's there's a there's a mental stress that's going on here too, and uh, God knows we're doing dealing with enough mental stress anyway because of the virus and what's gone on here. Uh, but to, to have something like this where you're afraid to walk down the street because you're afraid of what you you could be confronted with or what they might do to you, uh, yeah. I, I mean I I would not be surprised to know that some people are afraid to even go to their house now because they're concerned about what might happen in their own neighborhood. Yeah, right. And so I think that is that is some of the the, the constant fears in uh, the communities have. Right. It's like not knowing, you know, okay, like, if I, am I going to be, you know, uh, is this person going to be rude to me? Are they going to attack me? Like, I, I, I guess that is a that is a fear that many people have, right? Um, given how you know prevalent these these racist incidents have been, right? Um, and yeah, it, it it totally changes how we interact with society, and and I think that's that's what you know the racist people want, right? And so I think when we take action, when we're when the community comes out and say no, like you know we're we're going to be here, we're going to you know continue to be. Um, you know, working and continue to be like working with our communities, you know, whether as volunteers or as frontline workers, 
um, we're going to continue to participate in Canadian society, right? And, you know, even if you're you're being racist to us, we're, we're still going to be here, right? And we we have no choice. We're going to fight back, right? And and I think that's what's being said, you know, um, through the actions and, and through the organizing that's going on across North America, right? Um, yeah, we know, you know, Asian and, you know, uh, Chinese people have been in Canada for, you know, since the 1800s, right? You know, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's really important, um, that you know, um, we're seeing the community saying no, we're not accepting this, and we're not we're not going to tolerate it. Is there a greater understanding, and, and hopefully by extension, uh, maybe a, a greater move to try to do something about this within the greater community? Yeah, yeah, I think you know, uh, I a lot of things are like kind of like emerging, I guess, like you know, kind of the the consciousness around it, and you know, the awareness around it. Um, I think I do think you know. Um, yeah, it, it's good to see that, right? It's good to see that, right? You know, it's certainly in the community. Um, this is a, a, a an important moment, right? To you know recognize, you know, um, that you know racism exists in, in in Canada as well, and you know we we have to really uh, work hard to address those issues, right? And you know we got to work with our allies, and you know, in the Indigenous community and the Black community and other racialized community and the larger Canadian community to work together to fight against racism and to. And to and to build a social and economic justice, right? Like, how do we build that? How do we achieve that together, right? Instead of you know uh, scapegoating you know certain groups for you know larger systemic issues. Well, and I, I mean, for people to actually you know take out their frustration and their anger and their hatred uh, because of what's going on with a pandemic, uh, because yeah. of what's going on in in in, a, in the the global political world that, that's happening yeah. right now. The, uh, I, I think really speaks to just how small-minded they are. In other words, they, they take it out on somebody who, you know, was born in downtown Toronto or Hamilton or London, uh, who have absolutely nothing to do with this. They're Canadians. Uh, but, you know, they figured, I want to reach out. I want to, I want to punish somebody because I'm frustrated and angry, and I just don't like those people. And uh, the more we talk about this, I hope the more they just kind of crawl back under a rock, and we can see some of these numbers decrease. But uh, it's, it's got to be awfully frustrating when we see numbers like a 1700% or 700% increase in the in these sorts of crimes and just in one city alone uh I, I think it speaks to the magnitude of the problem yeah definitely definitely i think um definitely speaking out against it hoping to you know combat it right you know we gotta um, speak out against it we gotta organize around it you know we gotta make demands on on our elected officials to stand up against racism um and yeah we we have to you know fight back against uh you know this this notion that you know these um, Asian people are foreigners or, you know, they're spreading the virus and so on and so forth, right? Um, a lot of it is like, you know, one of the ha- – Hamilton. I'm really glad to be here with talking to with you in Hamilton, given, you know, how important Hamilton's history is uh, to the labor movement in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one of the first strikes in Canadian history was also by, you know, uh, Chinese-Canadian uh, workers in, in British Columbia, right? So there's yeah. a lot of these histories that I think we don't really engage and, you know, Chinese Canadians and Asians have been here for a long time, and you know, like like many other Canadians, they've been fighting for fighting for justice, right, and fighting for fairness, right. Exactly. Well, hopefully, t- discussing this is is going to do that and move it forward a little bit, at least, in, I guess, baby steps, and we'll just see what we can do about this. But we have to be consistent. Justin, it was a pleasure having you on the program today. Stay well, and uh, we'll uh, stay in touch. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Bill. Take care, Justin Kong, who is the executive director of the uh, Chinese Canadian National Council, Toronto chapter. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.